Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Because there's nothing else going on in the world right now, we're recording this just a couple days after the U.S. election, so there's nothing else going on in the world right now. So we thought we'd take a look at an excellent new list from Rolling Stone. It's called The Future 25, and it's about the future of the music business, and it spotlights 25 people who are doing some really innovative things in the music business, and a lot of it is genuinely fascinating. And I have with me to talk about that Amy X. Wang and Samantha Hissong and Ethan Millman. And if we get a chance, we'll also talk about the state of the concert industry, which, to be honest, has not changed much since the last time we spoke about it. But let's start with this list. Amy, what is the idea of this list and what were you looking for when it came time to find people to be on it? So, yeah, spoiler alert, the music industry has been really horrible this year. Everybody is in is total disarray after COVID shut down live music. Um, everyone's from not just the concert industry, but also recorded and publishing and things like songwriting have been affected because it's a whole ecosystem. So this year we really wanted for our feature to spotlight people who were either defying those odds and starting something really, really fascinating and new or trying to do something that like brings things up a little bit, um, whether it's creating a new revenue stream or like bringing songwriters together for a new project that they can do in lieu of composing for new music since people are dropping fewer new albums and things like that. Well, let's start with TikTok. Looking through TikTok as a user, it feels like anarchy. It feels like there's no way that an executive could have any influence on what's going on there because it's so user driven and so trend driven. So so how does that work? Tell me about that entry and tell me about what it's like to be in charge of music at TikTok. Yeah, I guess I could uh, wait since I talked with Isabel Quinteros Anus, who's one of the, you know, she's uh, one of the members of the team. You know, there, there's a few people I wouldn't call her just the head, but she's a very crucial figure in there. And, yeah. you know, I think anarchy is a it's a good way to put it. It's almost controlled anarchy when you're looking from the perspective of the music team who helps out with this because they're not exactly pushing what they want to be a hit necessarily. I mean, they are looking through the app for new artists to want to champion and to help go more viral. It's not like they don't do that, but it's still very much beholden to what the users are deciding to go viral. So where Isabel and the rest of the TikTok music team come in is that they start analyzing, they, they look at all, what's what's starting to pop off. They go pretty heavy into, okay, this is starting to go viral. And now let's pour gas on it and make it go absolutely crazy. So Isabel had done that with many people. Other people from the team had done that. And she is all, her, her hands are, are all over some really interesting cases like uh, Jason Derulo, who's kind of like the king of the app now. Um, and he was, I don't want to say like irrelevant, but he was in more of a, a, a twilight stage of his career from when, you know, the, 2000s and early 2010s when he was getting all those those hit songs and all of a sudden he comes back and it partly started when she visited him at his house just before the pandemic had begun and just showed him here's how to start using the apps and better practices for it and then after that meeting he started going off and he his personality fit i mean it's not like you know she's the only reason but she she pushed him in that right direction and she was telling me how she was doing the same now with uh, iggy azalea who if you look at her catalog she's she seems like she'd fit let's go to merc mercuriatus uh someone who i've spoken to over the years he's been in the music business for a long time but what he's doing right now is really interesting and this is a, another ethan thing Mercus is, is uh, basically throwing money at songwriters 
artists and producers to get the copyrights to songs. So what's the deal here? Why is he doing this and why is it innovative? Well, you know, it, it comes from this whole sense of bets in a way, you know, and, you know, like who's betting on what. So basically when Merck is buying up different songs, he's betting he can, you know, take the, the copyright stuff and use it for sync, like different sync opportunities, like movies, TV, video games, what have you, all these different other media opportunities, which are, have become really important in the industry and are great for, you know, getting streaming numbers up and revitalizing songs. And with him, he thinks, okay, I am going to buy a certain amount of songs. And he's got very particular good taste in terms of like, uh, you know, regardless of what you think of it musically, a lot of hits. Every time he buys up a catalog, he always has something where there's at least one huge song that you can imagine coming back into relevance because of ads or something. And so his idea is I want to get a lot of these and see if I could uh, like manage the songs themselves to make that happen more. He wants to have a decent size, but com comparably smaller to a lot of major publishers who are responsible for that. He wants a smaller um, list of those songs compared to others. And he wants to be able to have like this army of songs that he could just keep on pushing into new places to help make him money. So that's his bet to see if he could pull that off. For the songwriter who's selling it to him, it's okay. I'm going to cash out now. I'll buy a Tesla or I'll buy a huge piece of property or something. And hopefully I can make a lot of money investing it that way and maybe make more money than my own song could have done. You know, it's very much just like a hypothesis about how it could work. And with him, you know, there's other people who are doing it, but with him, obviously, as you said, he's been in the business for a long time. Songwriters know him, trust him, and like him. He's not just some Wall Street broker who's looking to buy a song. They think that he knows the business very well and that he is going to treat songs properly. So he's like a familiar face to be buying from, and he's become like one of the biggest disruptors in the industry for a pretty burgeoning business of catalog acquisition. We'll jump to the founders of Versus, who are very familiar names, Timbaland and Swiss Beats. Two things that were most interesting, like, and by most I mean like interesting to millions of people about Versus was one, it was really early. Like it was as soon as quarantine started, as soon as people were locking down at home, two people in the music industry, Timberland and Swiss Beats were like, you know what, we're going to start this rap battle. And then the second thing is it was really good. So it's not, it's not just enough to be early on something and to invent something, right? Like people actually have to enjoy it. And that was something that really delivered. People went on Instagram, millions of people at a time and listened to two rappers who either knew each other or perhaps had never met but just admired each other really duke it out in this like crazy organic like pent-up energy way and also at the time you have to remember that there were no sports going on um, there's nothing in the news but an onslaught of like this is bad for the industry this is bad for every single person in the world, basically, in every industry. And so to have this like very bright spot in quarantine on Instagram, a platform that everyone is already using, was just a perfect idea, a perfect conflation of like innovation, um, inspiration, and like thinking really quickly on your feet. And it's a really great example of something that started as a sort of like just side project or perhaps um, uh, enthusiast, like sort of music hobbyist project of these two artists who were just bored and has really spawned itself into its own product and its own um, sort of landscape. Yeah, and for someone who's behind the scenes like Dallas Austin, he, he was saying that it really helped them build his following, that people now associate him with the hits he made who might not have known before. So it also gave us moments like the RZA versus uh, DJ Premier battle, which was definitely one of the coolest things I've seen all year in music. And let's talk about Twitch. Twitch is... A whole new world. 
Twitch, best known among most people for basically watching people play video games. I think that's what people think it is, but it's so much more than that. Amy, why don't you explain why Twitch's head of music, Tracy Chan, is on the list? So when you think about Twitch, you think about video gaming, right? That's the that's the immediate association. You think about um, gamers who stream on Twitch, like stream their own games or build up a loyal fan base and become like YouTube celebrities, but for gaming. And until this year, that's what it was. But suddenly we've seen from all sides, really, like an onslaught of music on Twitch. And that's artists like Logic, who signed an exclusive deal with Twitch, or other artists who are just adding Twitch to their portfolio of social media apps that they like have to post on, that they have to engage with. Tracy is the person who's in charge of all of that at Twitch. He strikes deals with people. Um, he d- heads up the experiments. He came from Spotify for Artists, which is Spotify's platform design for artists and record labels to help them analyze their data and sort of control everything on the back end. And before that, he launched his own company called Crowd Album, which was a photo aggregation algorithm that took photos from fans at shows and sort of composited them together so you could tell which shows were where and which fans took what. And Spotify bought that, which is how the two ended up together, Tracy at Spotify. But he is really interesting for his career in all of these strange tech music, quasi-music, more tech spaces. His whole career has been like at YouTube and Spotify and this startup and now Twitch. And someone like um, like an old school music veteran executive would not have ever been able to imagine this happening because they just didn't exist. Like the companies, the job titles, none of that existed in the old music industry. And all of this is sort of like the first time anyone's ever had this role anywhere. So he is working on doing more things at Twitch that are along the lines of artists streaming on Twitch, artists um, designing maybe game shows or talk shows, hosting things things there and helping them figure out ways to add uh, new revenue models to things that they're already doing for free, maybe on other platforms or things they've never done before, but are trying for the very first time now that they don't have the opportunity to tour and to go out in, in public. So is the idea mostly that artists will per- sort of present themselves as personalities on Twitch or how does the sort of the music itself work it, itself into the uh, Twitch ecosystem? Yeah, it's a good question. There's not actually that much um, music, like recorded music. It's not like someone, an artist just goes on and like plays their music and sits there. And it's also not necessarily that they have to go play it live, like a live stream. It's mostly like the artist has their own music and you listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever. And then if you want like behind the scenes of the artist, maybe you want to like have a one-on-one with the artist or you want to have some specific platform where they can answer questions or you can like tip them for and request specific songs, then the idea is you would go to Twitch. Maybe before you could just like go to Instagram and DM them or like incessantly tweet at them. But it's like that kind of stuff is kind of a crapshoot and it also doesn't make any money for the artist. So what if there was a better way to sort of codify all of that into one place where both sides benefit and are able to have an experience that makes sense and doesn't feel um, hectic? Totally. You're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I'm here with Amy X. Wang and Ethan Millman and Samantha Hissong. And we're talking about Rolling Stone's Future 25 list about the future of the music industry. And we may also touch on the completely unchanged future or non-future of concerts. We'll be back in a minute. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast. 
part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. This is a, another Amy one, but I, I'm interested in what everyone has to say. This is a big one. This is definitely one of the most interesting companies in the world as far as music goes, as far as I'm concerned. And it's, uh, from Big Hit Entertainment is the global CAO, Lenzo Yoon. And Big Hit, for people who don't know, is, is perhaps best known for BTS, the biggest boy band in the world. And he is personally moving to the U.S., right, to, to kind of uh, move the center of gravity there. What's going on with him and with Big Hit? He is, yeah. Lenzo runs global operations for Big Hit, which is a South Korean entertainment company, but is now starting up a U.S. operation and really has like intense global aspirations. So as a way to sort of like solidify that ambition to the world, he's actually going to be the first South Korean executive in entertainment to move the operation stateside and take up a place in the U.S. and sort of like embed himself in the, the landscape here um, and build up new artists or build up his existing roster of artists' presence in the U.S. I think that that's a really interesting idea of like actually shifting your physical center of gravity as well as your, your metaphorical one. Of course, you could always aim to like introduce BTS to a, a new market by just like promoting their music there or like buying YouTube ads in that specific market. But the idea that Big Hit has is to actually design like on the ground bespoke ideas. So you go and you partner with like local institutions or local record labels who can advise you on like what TikTok memes are cool or like what type of sneaker is cool in California versus New York, etc. These are just like haphazard examples. I don't know if they're actually <laughs> consulting on sneakers, but it's like Convincing this kind one. of like attention. Yeah, it's like this attention to detail, right? At the same time, one thing Big Hit does that's really unique is this idea of passive, indirect um, artist participation. It sounds really ominous. Basically, it means that the artist assigns a specific set of rights to the label Big Hit, and they don't have to be involved in any decisions in their own licensing. Um, so BTS right now is part of like an animated set called Tiny Tan. I think I'm pronouncing that right, maybe. Um, and Big Hit licenses their animated images out to brands for commercials. So you see them in something like a fabric softener commercial for Downey, you see the little icons of BTS and they're like promoting the fabric softener. They're dancing around. They're not actually involved in it whatsoever. And it's unclear if they even like knew that that was happening, but they make money from it because that's the way the model works. Like they just allow Big Hit to do whatever they want. And Big Hit has been able to draw significant revenue from that. Um, they saw their profit jump from 22% in 2017 to 45% in 2019 from this idea of indirect participation. Um, I imagine that Western artists would find this a little bit less appealing, more people in the U.S. tend to prefer to control their own images or like sort of have a self-created brand rather than letting someone else take control of it. But it seems like it works really well for BTS and for Big Hit and for the other Big Hit artists. And as you can tell by the recent IPO on the Korean stock market, it's paid off in literally in creating um, millions of dollars for BTS and for Big Hit. Yeah, I think BTS's ownership stake is something like $105 million dollars. The other thing, and maybe this is a Ethan thing, is is how successful this BTS live stream was back in June. I think it might probably was the most lucrative live stream of all time. It's got to be up there. I, I'll have to fact check completely, but I can't imagine there's many others just for the sheer amount of people who tuned in and have paid for it. I mean, I remember saying like a while back, it was just a very big amount of proof that like this whole 
concept is not going away. I mean, BTS, not everyone is going to be able to draw in the sheer number of people that they did, but, but yeah, he, they, they draw their fans in well. And the thing is, I mean, they're not the only ones who know how to do that to some extent. And I think it was just a big reminder to everyone that live streaming you know, when there's no capacity the way there is at a regular live show, you can draw in a lot of fans. And if you are smart about the way that you set up the show, it could be pretty, it, it could be pretty good and you'll make a good amount of money just because of the overhead. I mean, that's what Andrew Jensen had done uh, with Noon Chorus and what some, like who's on our list, along with so many other people who are, uh, who are live streaming it. Just to stay on Big Hit for a second, what do we think the, the secret sauce is that might sort of give them an, an ability to go to build other BTSs like what is the what is the core that makes this company special because they definitely know something a big hit as a as a company breaking new artists you mean yeah I think that the BTS um, phenomenon as it's referred to is not specifically a like anything formulaic that they did but intrinsic to the band itself, right? Like they got seven people who were really charismatic and those people managed to explode. However, the basis of their success is definitely a formula that you can see throughout K-pop and BTS and Big Hit perhaps perfected the perfect iteration of this formula, which is like blow up here, blow up there, do collaborations here, um, specifically aim for these shows, then like target these. And above all, like every minute of the day, stay on social media, connect with fans every single moment. And like every time someone says, I love you, like tweet back at them, I love you too. It's that kind of thing that is like so personal and so like, you know, like insane to think of, like that, that's just so much time and effort and you never would see um, someone like Madonna like tweeting back at every single fan because they like to, to preserve what we just said, like an era of mystique, right? So um, for BTS to do that was really refreshing for Western fans for one thing. And secondly, they're able to be like so rigorous with everything they do. Uh, choreographically, the number of albums they release, like everything is planned so well and you can tell. And I think fans really appreciate that. Yeah, that that's what strikes me is they, they obviously there is there's been a K pop formula, but they've taken it to the next level. Let's talk about Epic Games and Adam Sussman. That means talking about Fortnite, which has become, as we said at the beginning, yet another venue for the music business that wouldn't have been imaginable as such, uh, maybe even a year ago. Uh, And it it started as so many things do nowadays with Travis Scott. So maybe Ethan, you can talk about all that. Yeah, well, it actually started with Marshmallow like a year ago, too. It was not nearly as big as the the, as the Travis show. I feel like, you know, there are two different watermarks. I think Marshmallow was like, proof that oh there, there's proof something of concept here. More, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and then travis was the cultural moment that just told the world this is a huge thing now and so you know as much as like i i've been like it's been getting shoved in my face for the past like few months not that show but video games and its emergence with with music it's kind of insane like beyond being the year of covid and live music stopping this is the year of like gaming and music really coming to head. I mean, it had been happening, bubbling for years, and now we're just seeing it because COVID's kind of forced people to think differently. But so, you know, you could see with Epic in particular and with Fortnite, you know, the the Travis show is really, really successful. 
got a song to number one for him. And I mean, that that's also just as much a testament to that Travis Scott tends to have a, another similarly devout fan base the same way that like a BTS would, you know, like you could see that with McDonald's too, the amount of people who want to go get the sicko mode burger. But with them, I mean, they, they see it do really, really well. And they start doubling down. They actually open a studio and tell like artists, hey, this is a place for you to make the concert of your dreams a reality because you can literally build it from the ground up and you'll do it on this special stage. And so they've been doing more and more of them to different extents. You know, you see like lower, like lower cost, but still like, you know, immersive shows. Like they did one for this upcoming Columbia artist named Dominic Fike. And they've done one, they, they did one on Halloween for J Balvin, which was way more immersive and like high tech with like, you know, cross reality elements and LED walls and stuff. Super crazy. And I mean, it's just, it's clear that they're buying into the idea that video games are not just games. That's an experience where people are hanging out and going like spending their weekends with their friends. And that why wouldn't we make something like concerts? Like people love being together for that. Let's talk about a company called Dream Barrett. Amy, you want to take that? This is a good segue. Um, we're talking about live streaming and how to add on to it. Dream Bear is one that has clearly done so. Um, they do live streamed concerts or more accurately, like streamed concerts and or music videos and or productions around video for animation. Basically, that's exactly what it sounds like. You have a music video, but you can't shoot anything live. Um, you just animate it, right? Like that's, there's so much creativity happening there and so much that you can do with illustrated video um, or like things on a screen that you do via live action that you know you can't do or that are way too expensive to do in the COVID era. They've been really successful designing music videos for everybody from um, like Doja Cat, Katy Perry, Tanashi, Kaigo, Santana. It's like a whole range of people that they've worked with. And Evan Brown, the guy who runs it, we highlighted here because of his passion for this and the fact that he started not being an animator himself, but just like aggressively determined to do this thing. So he was shooting live performances. And then one day he was like, no, this isn't working. Like This isn't fresh enough. It's not interesting. And he just found an animator that he really admired, Daniel Cordero, and asked him, do you want to help? And they just spoke for hours. They really wanted to hustle. And they got together and started this company. And since then, they've obviously blown up. They um, have worked with people with like RCA Records. And I said earlier, um, Katy Perry and Doja Cat and done things that would not be possible um, in a physical in-person shot music video. Now in quarantine, of course, it's the perfect moment because you can't shoot. So a lot of people are turning to them for like solutions on how to release cool things. And that seems like something that will definitely stay around because when people come back and start filming again, it's not necessarily um, true that everyone will want to do that. People will still looking be still be looking for the next different thing and for something that makes them stand apart. And Dream Bear kind of really fits that bill. I wanted to talk about Courtney and Paul Clemson and they're the founders of something called the Roadie Clinic. And let's have Samantha talk a little bit about them. Yeah, um, the Clemsons, they're a couple. They, um, run, they've run their own production company called Theory One Productions for years now. They don't have kids. They live their lives on the road. And because of that, roadies have kind of become their children in a way. And, you know, these people, the unsung heroes behind the concert industry, you know, everyone from your audio engineer, the people running the cameras, um, the people who are responsible for lighting, um, guitar techs, anyone you can think of behind the scenes or on the side of the stage making things happen while the show is going on. These people are often um, 
you know, undervalued and there's no, there's no HR. There's never been an, an advocacy group. If something goes wrong, where do you turn? You don't really, yeah, there are production managers and tour managers, but that's not really their job. Um, and so basically they started working on this concept for there being an advocacy group or, and kind of, you know, de facto HR service um, before the pandemic hit. And then when COVID-19 struck, they realized it was more important than ever for them to move forward with it. And uh, they started demolition on a building that is uh, in Niles, Michigan, and in between tour stops. It's off of a frequented stretch of highway that tour buses typically take. And so it's, it's supposed to kind of be this oasis. They're, they're planning on offering services like uh, therapy. Um, it's not really a rehab center, but there will be some sort of you know, um, kind of like an AA programming, things like that. They conducted a survey and asked people, you know, with this very strange lifestyle that roadies often experience, which is constantly being on the road, not having roots, um, having a difficult time explaining your lifestyle to your family members and your loved ones. They did the survey that explored some of the problems that arise from that, like a lot of people struggle with mental health issues. A lot of people struggle with substance abuse. Um, a lot of people struggle with, you know, financial literacy and understanding how to save money in an industry that is very seasonal and gig oriented. And, you know, you don't have necessarily um, uh, benefits or anything like that. And you finish a tour and then you're not working at all till another tour picks up. And so, yeah, they realize now more than ever that these people need those resources, uh, especially gearing up for a time when touring will eventually come back and it will come back in force and harder than ever. And there's going to be tons of work, but these people are going to go from lifestyles that are, you know, sitting at home with no work at all and, you know, sleeping for the first time and God knows how long to going back on the road and working insane hours with minimal breaks around the clock, you know, loading in and out at like four in the morning, things like that. And they're they're fearful of a whiplash effect. So they hope that they can be back or they hope that they can be up and running um, by summer of next year. I think it was their goal the last time I spoke with them. They just finished an an awareness campaign and and they're now working on fundraising and they're they're very confident that um, they'll get the, the resources they need to get up and running, hopefully by summer, fall next year. And Samantha, let's also talk really quickly about the founders of Blackout Tuesday. Yeah, um, Brianna and Jamila, they, they're music executives. They took their exhaustion and their desire for a moment of rest and they turned it into a movement. Following the deaths of George Floyd, Brianna Taylor and Ahmad Arbery, they knew that an industry that is powered significantly by black minds and black art could not and should not go on with business as usual. So, you know, it started with them being like, we're tired. We just, we just can't, we can't go back to work right now. And then they were like, well, maybe we should take this moment and do something with it. So they held a Zoom, a Zoom summit and that drew like 1500 people. And these people are artists, producers, label executives, managers, publishers, lawyers, radio and streaming gatekeepers and, and more. But, um, you know, they the point was to offer industry members a safe space and an open floor to kind of spitball and find solidarity. And 
that was just their first step. But since then, they've released um, an actionable list of demands that asks for things like a third party audit of industry diversity statistics, an annual report on pay disparities, uh, the elimination of uh, long term temporary positions and the creation of, you know, career development opportunities that would allow black executives to to rise and to hold roles outside of just urban music and black music departments. And they've really shined and helped so much in a year filled with confusion and fear and hate. And it's what they're doing is really commendable. Absolutely. And before we go, we talked a few months ago about the state of concerts and you just touched upon it. There's, there's some hope for summer of next year. Uh, I've heard, I've heard some people being significantly more pessimistic about that. There's been some innovative outdoor socially distanced things that we've all looked into and written about, but those are novelties, stop gaps, cool little things, but certainly not a full-fledged return of the concert business. So where are we with all of this and, and what degree of optimism and pessimism are you seeing out there, especially as the pandemic worsens? Well, I mean, the optimism is just that, I mean, we know concerts are going to come back. There's no way they aren't. And, you know, everyone's kind of gearing up for for just like the big slate when it's all safe and, you know, well and good. It seems like people want to go back to concerts when they can. I mean, you know, Live Nation will tell you pretty quickly on any amount of like earnings calls that a lot of fans are keeping their tickets and wanting to come back when it's safe. But the pessimism lies in the same place where it was when, you know, the three of us had written the same story that, you know, we ran a few months back, which is that the timetable isn't clear and we don't know what's going to be safe. A lot of the venues that people love, like many of them may not be around if they don't get money from the federal government, because at this point it seems pretty clear that, you know, without funding, they just can't operate. It's clear that, you know, there's no such thing as a normal show until we know it's going to be safe. And we're not really entirely clear when that is still. And I think that there's a problem when people think, you know, because we can do this show here, it means the industry is starting to bounce back. But the concert industry will not thrive again until touring can thrive again. And, you know, it, it like financially speaking, it doesn't make sense if you can go to one venue on your map, but then you have to skip around three or four other venues to then get to the next one. There's, you know, so much is dependent on local mandates. And it really, we, we need artists to be able to tour successfully throughout the whole country for the industry to really bounce back. Well said. Thank you very much to Amy X. Wang and Ethan Millman and Samantha Hisong, and be sure to check out the entire Future 25 on Rolling Stone's website and also in the November issue of Rolling Stone. So we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, leave us five stars and or a nice review on iTunes if you can. It's always appreciated. And as always, stay safe. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Welcome to... 
to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.